we love you. We thank you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, so, like I said, um, I'm a little frazzled tonight. I don't know if y'all noticed. I'm just a little frazzled. Um, we've had an interesting day. There have been lots of fun things that have gone on today. Um, and so, uh, it's, it's been, it's been a little, it's been an, an un, unusual day. Um, but we are coming into this season of Lent. All right. And so, uh, again, as we, uh, I don't, I don't know that everybody's come from, if you came from a, a church tradition that's a little more higher church, and what I mean by that is that churches that are a little more formal, um, um, churches that are typically connected to the church calendar and things like that a little closer, so Anglican or, or, uh, Episcopal or Methodist or something like that, even Presbyterian, um, you, you probably are more familiar with some of these ideas. If you came from a lower church tradition like Baptist, what, what I came from or, or Pentecostal, some kind of Pentecostal church, then you, you may have less of a concept of these things. But I like the church calendar. You guys know I like the church calendar because I talk about it when we are going through the different seasons of, of the church. And so Lent is a season about self-examination. Okay, It's a season of, of repentance and of prayer. Um, of almsgiving. Almsgiving is, is basically generous um, um, giving to, to the, the poor or the needy. Um, it's a time for uh, reading and, and meditating on God's word. Historically, it was used as a season in, in the ancient church. Um, they only did baptisms at Easter. So what would happen is if you became a believer during the course of the year, um, they wouldn't baptize you immediately. They would wait till Easter to do it. And so the season of Lent was a a catechism season, right? It was the time where um, new converts were coming and being taught the faith leading up to Easter when they would be baptized, all right? And so not only were those new believers kind of being uh, taught in the faith, but, but everybody was sort of focusing on some of these same themes. And so on one side, to focus, we should be think, focusing on these things all the time, right? Prayer and, and, and repentance and meditating on God's word and, and helping the poor, we should, we should focus on these things all of our lives. And yet at the same time, in, in just the way that we would go on a marriage retreat, right, on a weekend to focus on, on our marriages or the way we go to T4G every couple of years and focus on, on, on discipleship and stuff like that, I don't think it's a bad idea to say there are ter- certain times of the year where we zoom in a little more closely on certain themes that, that the scriptures point us to. Um, and so another thing is I think, you know, probably if any of y'all are doing a Bible reading plan, you're getting to the sketchy parts, right? Like you're at the point in your Bible reading plan where you're like, man, I was doing so good and now I'm in Leviticus. And it's, and it's like, um, it feels like I've downshifted a whole lot. And so Lent is a great, it falls at a great time where it's kind of like, hey, 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 get back on track, right? Like let's, let's focus on this stuff and continue to push in and continue to pursue God in our daily lives. And so, now, so having said that, this, this sort of Lenten series that we're going to be doing, um, we're calling it Make Every Effort. And obviously that, that line comes from this, this section of text um, that we're reading. But we're talking about this general idea of making every, every effort to add um, various kinds of, of um, various aspects of sanctification to our lives as we, as we live out our faith. Um, in a very general sense... I think you can break down the way we live out our sanctification, 
right, into two simple categories. And what I mean, so we've got justification, what Jesus has done for us objectively on the cross that we receive through faith. And then there's sanctification, that process that we cooperate in, that where God conforms us to the image of Jesus all throughout our lives, um, perfecting us when we get to heaven. Okay, that's what I'm talking about when I say sanctification. And I think sanctification can kind of be broken down into two broad categories. You have holiness and you have godliness. All right. Now, some people would probably use those terms almost interchangeably, but I'm going to make a slight distinction in them. And it's a distinction that the, the author Jerry Bridges makes. And he basically says holiness is is about our Christian character. OK, it is growing in devotion and obedience to God's word and commands. OK, that's what holiness is. But godliness is a little distinct, and that is essentially he calls it our holiness in action. And so he says godliness is distinct because it is us applying our holiness to the mission and the commands that are the heart of God in the world. Okay, And so you can kind of see there's an inward focus to sanctification, and then there's an outward focus to sanctification. And I think that's a good distinction. And I think Lent is a perfect time to look at those concepts, right? To look at not only the internal sanctification that that we are pursuing, but that external um, sanctification as well. And a great passage to do that is right here in 2 Peter chapter 1. And so when we go down, we see that list, and you probably noticed it as Tim read the passage in verses 5 through 7, that description of what sanctification looks like. This growth in holiness and godliness. And so there are these seven words. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Now again, notice what we're not saying. Um, Our salvation does not lie in how well we do those things. Okay, Our salvation lies in faith in Jesus, right? We are justified by faith, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, okay? The language in verses 3 and 4 of this passage makes that abundantly clear, that we're not talking about a works-based kind of salvation, all right? And yet, the text is pretty clear that it, it is necessary that we pursue our sanctification, right? So he uses phrases like, make every effort to do these things. Be diligent about doing these things, right? Uh, And so I think there's a flow to those seven words. I think they're in that order for a reason. Virtue leading to knowledge, knowledge to self-control, self-control to steadfastness, steadfastness to godliness, godliness to brotherly affection, and brotherly affection to love. That's why he says he adds to each, right? If you notice the text, he doesn't say, add to your faith virtue, and add to your faith knowledge, and add to your faith self-control. He doesn't say that. He says, add to your faith virtue, add to your virtue knowledge, add to your knowledge self-control, add to your self-control steadfastness. And so they are linked, and we'll talk about that as we go throughout the series um, as we lead up to Easter, but but today we're just going to zoom in on the first one, right? We're just going to talk about that first one that says, add to your faith virtue, all right? Virtue is kind of an old-fashioned word, I think, right? It conjures up sort of these these pictures of like medieval knights and, and their lady fair, um, you know, maidens in distress, right? There's this, the, I, when I hear the word virtue, it doesn't sound like a word that we use all the time. Um, I pray for my kids that there's, there's four things that I always pray for my kids. Um, I pray for their faith, their passion, their belonging, and their virtue. 
Okay, And so on a typical time when I'm praying for my kids, I pray those four things. And yet, even when I pray those four things, when I say the word virtue, God, make my children virtuous. Even when I'm praying it to God, I go, that's sort of a weird word. Like, it sounds weird. Like, it just seems old-timey or something, like like disconnected. And yet, I'm confident of that prayer, and I think it's important that my children grow in virtue. And yet, the word sounds funny. Virtue basically just means moral excellence. Okay, it means moral excellence. And yet it is a word that, again, I don't think we use much anymore, much like we don't use its antithesis, the word for its opposite, and that is sin. Um, We don't talk about sin the way we used to talk about sin, and we don't talk about virtue the way we used to talk about virtue. Maybe that's because we have a culture that doesn't really believe in either of them anymore. Okay, we have a culture that has kind of given up on the idea of absolutes out there, either absolute goods or absolute evils. And so I think of how many times, even in even in Christian pulpits, how little we use the language of sin and how often we use the language of things like negative behaviors, poor decisions, disordered lives, right? Destructive ways of thinking. I'm not saying those things are wrong to say. I'm just saying they're not saying the same thing that sin is saying, right? We use language like language about addiction and and about disease and things like that, but we don't talk about moral responsibility a lot. And when we do talk about sin, it's usually stuff that's out there and not in here. Right. And so we talk about abortion being a sin. We talk about homosexuality being a sin. We talk about um, um, human trafficking being a sin. And, and we should call those things sin. But it seems to be the case that we are far more concerned about the sins that are out there than the sins that are in our own lives and in our own congregations. The scriptures, though, don't change the definition of sin. Right. They don't take sin lightly. James tells us that who ever uh, keeps the whole law but fails only in one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Right? That's, that's a pretty serious thing to say. That if you mess up in one place, it is the same as if you had messed up in everything. Galatians says something similar. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. Right? So you can do most of it right and mess up in only one place and yet... Um, You are cursed, right? You have been cut off from God. God takes sin seriously, and consequently, God takes virtue seriously. So why is it that virtue seems like such an old-fashioned concept? You certainly never hear people just going around saying, well, I don't believe in virtue. I think virtue's stupid, right? Nobody says that. We're not against it. And yet... The Bible says we're supposed to seek virtue diligently. And I'm going to be straight up. I, that's not the way I would characterize most Christians I know. To be straight up, that's not the way I would characterize my life. Right? I would not look to myself and say, you know what I notice about me on a daily basis? I am seeking virtue diligently. Right? I am making every effort to add virtue to my faith. I don't think I would describe myself that way. It's a safe place, right? I can say that. That's not a, we're, I'm not going to get in trouble. So why do you think that is? Why do we, why do we kind of have a standoffish relationship to not just the word, but even the concept of virtue, right? Well, let me, let me suggest a couple things to you. Number one, I think we're suspicious of virtue. 
on one side, we look to it um, in a skeptical kind of way. And I think this is this is something that seeped into the church from from the broader culture. So some of you are probably familiar with a a philosopher named Nietzsche, right, or Nietzsche, depending on on who uh, how you pronounce it or whatever. So one of the ideas that comes along in Nietzsche's thought is this. He says truth claims are power plays. Right. At the end of the day, anybody who is saying something and making a claim about what is true or what is good, that at the end of the day, all that is is a power play. They're just trying to position themselves or give themselves leverage over other people. And I think in some ways that idea, which is sort of a, a focal point of postmodern kind of thought, the postmodern culture that we live in, those, those ideas have snuck into the way Christians think in some ways too. And so when we see virtue in other people, sometimes we just perceive it as self-righteous posturing, right? When we see somebody acting in a virtuous way, we go, man, they're just trying to act like they're holier than thou, right? Or, or um, something. We feel like we're being attacked, that they're making a, a power play against us. It's, they're using that virtue as an opportunity to put themselves in a morally superior position, okay? We feel that way sometimes. And so immediately it comes to mind, you know people like this, right? You know people who sort of um, put their virtue on their sleeve so that everybody can see, that have a an arrogant or a self-righteous kind of demeanor. Um, people like the Pharisees that we see in, in the Gospels, right, who are proud and are, are, are big about showing everybody their, their, their giving and their prayer times and stuff like that, trying to make people think that they are holy and set apart. And so we know people like that. We know people do that. And we can sense sometimes that, yes, that's what's going on. These people are being self-righteous and they're trying to get the moral high ground. But at the same time, we should be honest, um, that's not always the case, right? Sometimes we see that virtue in other people or that virtue is presented and and we we buck it, right, because we feel conviction, there, where we perceive that their virtue is somehow making me inferior in some way, right? Like if they are a person who has ascended to this level where they have believe and live by this standard of virtue, whatever it is, and I haven't, then that must mean that somehow I'm beneath them, right? I'm I'm below them. I'm less conscientious. I'm less committed. I'm less devoted than that other person is. And I don't like that, right? I don't like feeling that way with people. And so we deflect it in some way. We, we get that, that, that sense of, of conviction, but then we deflect it away and we roll our eyes and we say, you know what, um, that, that goodness um, that is, is in that person, it's just self-righteousness. Um, it's not something I need to, to pay attention to, but it may be that in that moment we are actually feeling the weight of our own negligence, right? Our own lack of diligence towards rooting out sin and pursuing virtue, okay? And so it's funny, man, it's funny, all the little things we do in our heads and in our hearts to try to assuage that, that conviction, right? You know, we get convicted and we start going, well, this is, this is the different reasons why I shouldn't have to listen to that or whatever. And it's, it's interesting that all the different kinds of gymnastics that we do to justify our own views, right? We want to be virtuous, I don't think I could ask, I wouldn't ask any Christian and they said, no, I want to be an unvirtuous person. Nobody would say that, right? Everybody wants to be virtuous, but the truth is, we don't want to be too virtuous. 
We don't want to be people who are perceived as self-righteous or prudish or holier than thou. Um, I want to be able to relate to people, right? I want to be able to like hang out and, 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 and have a winsome, uh, faith and a winsome kind of witness with people. I don't want people to feel on edge around me. And so I don't want my virtue to make me seem weird. All right. I, I get that impulse. Okay. Something that happens when you're a pastor is that when you see somebody seven times out of ten, the first thing they say to you is, hey, Ash, sorry I wasn't at church last week. Okay? Like that's how they enter, like that's how they start conversations. And it, and it makes you feel weird as a pastor. Like, I don't want to be that guy. Like I'm not like, every time I see somebody, the second I see them going, how many times have they been at church? If they haven't been at church enough times, then I'm going to have a different relate. You know, like that's, that's not how I engage with people, but that's how people think about pastors a lot of times, right? Man, it's the worst with youth. Like that's the, it's, they, 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 they sense that uneasiness. I don't want to, I don't want to be, I'm not a truancy officer, right? Like I'm not this guy who's going around looking for kids who, who laid out of school that week. Um, I want to have a relatability to people. I want to, I want to have, um, I want to be approachable. Um, you could say Jesus was approachable. That's not a bad thing, right? Jesus had this uncanny ability for people who were, even people who were very deep in their own sinful lives, to, to have a kind of ease with Jesus. He was approachable, right? But here's what I notice. I don't think, when you read the scriptures, Jesus' approachableness was a function of his worldliness, right? That's not why people felt like they could come to Jesus. It wasn't because they went, oh man, this is just a bro that I can hang out with and he's probably done all the same things I did. No. There was something else going on. And so I wonder if we're being completely honest with ourselves a lot of times. Sometimes we sideline virtue or that, that moral excellence um, because, again, we don't want to feel like outsiders. We just want to fit in with people, right? And so we don't want to, we don't want to step out and be too holier than thou because we just want to fit in. We don't want to be seen as naive or inexperienced or out of touch or, or God forbid, uncool. And you say, man, Ash, I'm a 25 or 35 or 45 or 55-year-old person. I don't care about being cool anymore. Baloney. Um, you do. Um, you care about being cool among some kind of group that you're around. No, you may not be wearing skinny jeans and, you know, the newest sunglasses or something like that. That may not be your deal. But you still want to be accepted and one of the group of the groups that you're in. Maybe that's the guys that you work with. Maybe it's the ladies um, that, that you are at the gym um, when you go or something. There's a group of people who you want to be accepted by. And that is a powerful thing, right? That pull to be accepted and in the know is incredible. And so we can't, we can't ignore that. And we, and we should check our own hearts when it comes to those things. Moreover, I would say not just that we don't want to not fit in, but man, we just don't want virtue to hinder our lives too much, right? I want to do the things I want to do, and I want to um, see the things I want to see, and and I want to I want to be morally decent, right? And that has a function too. I don't want to be immoral or unvirtuous in a way that would get me. Out of y'all's good graces, right? I don't want you looking at me and saying, and all of a sudden I start thinking, I'm like, man, how many of my decisions are made because I'm trying to please man and not trying to please God? Most of the world, I think, um, is like that. But the moral excellence that is, um, 
that God calls us to calls us to put ourselves in positions where we are on the edge of things sometimes. It requires sacrifice. It requires self-denial. It requires a reversal of our priorities, a replacement of our values. Moral excellence means struggle, right? It means you are going to be in the progress of, of changing and probably moving away in some ways from um, those around you. C.S. Lewis has got a great quote about this, and I use it all the time. I probably use it two or three times in the time that we've been meeting as a church. And he's talking about our lives as illustrated by remodeling a house. Okay, and it's a great illustration of that, that this idea of moral excellence, of virtue that God calls us to. Lewis says this, imagine that you were a living house and God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and he's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew about those jobs and you knew that they needed to be done and you're not surprised. But then presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor here, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is in the business of building palaces. He intends to come and live in it himself. All right. That's a great picture of what we're talking about here. Right. Like Jesus comes into our lives and says, no, 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 I'm going to change everything. Right. I'm not just here to clean you up a little bit so that you'll be um, get rid of all those super destructive behaviors that you knew you had. Right. If you were an alcoholic before you came to Jesus Christ, you probably knew that your alcoholism was going to destroy you one day. Right. You could see the problems it made in your life. And so Jesus is going to clean up your alcoholism. But if that's the only thing you thought he was going to do, you are wrong. Right. He's going to come in and start jacking up your life in all kinds of different ways. Virtue is something that we think and we want to control, but virtue is something that we can't control, right? It's something that we are supposed to run headlong into, that we are supposed to chase after um, and seek with, um, with the passion of Christ himself. Virtue isn't something we can manage, right? But we have to make every effort, to add that virtue to our faith. So when virtue in the world, right, when we see virtue out there in somebody or whatever, and it convicts us, um, how can we lean into it? Right. That's what I, that's what I want to, what is it that will make us realize and say, you know what? I feel that, that, uh, that prick in my heart of, of, of God working, um, how can I, what, what do I need to do to lean into that? Um, how can we, instead of being suspicious of it, how can we, instead of deflecting it, how can we, instead of making excuses for it, how can we rightly respond to that, that, that sense? Okay. Well, I think God, the gospel itself informs how we pursue that virtue. God says, be holy. Because I am holy, right? He is calling us to be set apart, and the gospel is the means by which he sets us apart. That's one thing that we, that we don't talk about a whole lot in, in the church. We talk about the fact of, of what Jesus has saved us from a lot, but we often don't talk about what Jesus has saved us to. We don't talk about why he actually came to save us. 
right? What does he want from us now? And sanctification is a picture of that. For one, he wants virtuous people. He wants people that look like his son, Jesus. He, the same way, uh, you know, I think about with, with us and our families. When we have children, right, do you have children and say, you know what I want? You know what I want out of my kids? I just want to get them raised to the point where they can get out of my house and I can never see them again, right? Um, now, it feels that way sometimes, okay? But that's not, hopefully, what most people think of when they're thinking about their kids, right? What they say is they go, you know what? I want to raise children who become the kind of people that I would want to spend my life and will spend the rest of my life with. Right. Like you want your children to be there and you want them to be the kind of people who don't make this difficult all the time. Right. I think God's the same way. I think that's what God is doing when God saves us. He doesn't just save us because he's like, cool, you're not going to hell now. Now, go live your life somewhere. That's not it. He says, I want you to be the kind of people who are going to be welcome to my table, who are going to be welcomed into my household. And we're all going to get along. Because you're going to be people who are just like my son, Jesus. And so the gospel starts pushing back on all these things, right? And so first off, the gospel says this. The gospel says there's no such thing as self-righteousness. Not that people don't act self-righteously sometimes. That's definitely a real thing. But there's no such thing as self-righteousness. You can't make yourself righteous. And so that means these, these good works that we're doing, this pursuing of, of virtue... It's not earning us a reward in the sense of we're not buying our salvation from God or anything, right? We are doing these as an act of love towards God. And so we're not trying to win. This isn't a competition, right? I'm not sitting here going, well, you know, Kyle's really good at this one thing, and, and Tanner's really good at this thing over here, and i got to beat them. i got to be more virtuous than them or something. It, it's not, that's not the point. I'm, trying to, I'm looking towards the Lord, and I'm saying I'm seeking virtue um, because... God has commanded me in love to do it, not because I'm trying to win something, okay? So it's not about self-righteousness. Even in other people, it's not about self-righteousness. Two, the gospel shows us that that conviction that you have, that uncomfortable feeling in that moment, that is grace, okay? That is a blessing to you. That uncomfortableness is, is God speaking to you in that moment, reminding you that you are a sinner, reminding you that you still have work to do. All right. He could just leave you in your current state and you would you would fester in all those sins um, in your life. And yet every once in a while, he graces us by saying, hey, guess what? You're not who you're supposed to be yet. You're a work in progress. Did you see that virtuous act or that virtuous attitude or that virtuous behavior in that other person? That's right. That's biblical. I want you to see that and, and, and be drawn to it and start to live towards that. The gospel reminds us that there are no um, surprises when we sin, right? We are all sinners. Um, sometimes, and I've had this question from multiple people, Ash, is it depressing as a pastor when people bring all their problems to you? Like, is it just so depressing because people just keep on coming to you on a regular basis telling you about the, the things that have messed up in their lives, the bad stuff that's happened, the secret sins that they've never told any about, anybody about? Is that depressing? And I would say the answer is no. It's not depressing for two reasons. One, because I'm expecting it. And you might go, well, that doesn't make me feel good, um, right? I'm expecting those things to come to me at some point. I'm expecting you to show up and say, Ash, I have this problem. Ash, this thing happened. Ash, sometimes I do this, right? I'm expecting that. You know why? Because you're a sinner. 
I know you are. There's not a person in here who I look at and go, no, I think they've pretty much got it together. You don't. Nobody does. And so what I what, what happens is when you come to me and you say, Ash, I, I need some help. I've got this thing going on in my life. I, I'm not depressed about that. Like it doesn't it doesn't make me sad. It makes me go. All right. Holy Spirit's working. OK, um, we're seeing things happening. Right. People's hearts are being convicted and, and and they're turning their sin over. Right. That is the power of confession. That is the power of accountability in our lives. So there aren't any surprises. That's what the gospel tells us. You're all sinners. All right. And so that lets us be free repenters. If I do something and I go, let's take something that is a relatively trivial um, um, thing on, on, in the grand scheme of things. Let's say I'm talking to another pastor and I go, I really love this racy TV show that's on HBO. Right. I'm like, man, it's so great. Such a good show or whatever. And that pastor goes, you know, I don't think maybe that's the best thing to watch. First thing in my heart is, don't tell me what to watch, right? Um, I like my shows. Um, that's a really cool show. You, you're not better than me. Um, who do you think you are, whatever, right? But maybe that's an opportunity for God to say, you know what? He's probably right. That show's garbage, and you shouldn't be watching. It's, it's not making you any more like Jesus. Um, it's probably just filling your head full of garbage. And so maybe that guy's right. And there would be a piece in me that might say, well, I've got to hide this from him, right? I can't let this guy know that I watch his show because he's going to think he's better than me then. The answer is, nope, I'm already a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. He knows I'm a sinner. I should probably just go, yeah, man, good call. You're probably right on that. It's nice that you're a little further down the road than me in terms of sanctification on this issue and that you can speak truth back into my life and the Holy Spirit can use that to make me go, yeah, you're probably right. I shouldn't watch that, right? Is that the way we usually respond to those things? It is not, okay? But that's, I think, what the Holy Spirit wants us to do. There aren't any surprises in this whole thing, right? We're all sinners and we all are works in progress. And then lastly, as followers of Christ... He is our master now. And so I said, all these things point us to something. All these issues are, are about the fear of man, honestly, ultimately. Um, our, our, our virtue, um, our, our reticence and our, our suspicion of virtue is really about the fear of man. We don't want to be seen as something by other people. And the reality is the gospel tells us it doesn't matter what those other people think if Christ has called you to something, right? If Christ has said, do this, be this, have this kind of attitude, then it doesn't matter if the world thinks negatively of that. It doesn't matter if the world thinks that's stupid or uncool. Um, be holy as I am holy. Jesus says these words himself. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Right. Jesus is saying, I'm the only person whose opinion you need to care about. Again, that doesn't give us freedom to be jerks to people and things like that. So I don't care what you think. I'm, we're still supposed to be gentle and loving in, in, in the way we live out our lives. And yet we're not supposed to fear men. We're supposed to fear God. And so that sums up a whole lot of our problem. We continue to be threatened by the world, and the world says, you can't have that stupid attitude or that sinful mindset. You know why? Because you're going to find that you're on the wrong side of history, right? We hear that phrase all the time. You're going to end up on the wrong side of history. Guess what? 
We have the whole story. We know how the book ends. We're not going to end up on the wrong side of history. We already know how the book ends. But we may end up on the wrong side of society. In fact, we are promised that we're going to end up on the wrong side of society. Right? We are going to be on the wrong side of people's opinions about the way the world should work. And you know what? That's hard, but that's okay. Because Christianity is, is a countercultural faith. That's part of our problem, I think, in, in, in Western Christianity today, is we're just a little too not countercultural. Um, we are a little too much like the rest of the world. We're just it's the other half of it, right? We're not the opposite of the world. We're just the, 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 the mirror image of the world or whatever, right? Um, you know, there's that, there's that phrase that talks about how love is not the opposite of hate. Love and hate are actually on the same side. They're two passionate expressions of either love or hate for something. The opposite of love and hate is indifference, okay? I, I feel like the church is that way a lot in the world right now. We are not on the opposite end. We're just on the, the, the other wing of people, right? We need to be a countercultural people, a people who looks to the word for our source of truth and our, our, our depiction of virtue and then live our lives in light of that. Let me close with one more quote um, from a guy named David Wells. David Wells is a is a pastor theologian. He's and he's written a lot about sort of the decline of of um, Christianity and Western civilization and stuff. And he says this. He says the church itself is going to have to become more authentically moral. For the greatness of the gospel is now seen to have become quite trivial and inconsequential in its life. Uh, if the gospel means so little to the church. If it changes so little, why then should unbelievers believe it? Okay? So there's, there's a twin reality there. If we lie about the nature of sin in our own lives, if we pretend to have this level of virtue when we are people of this level of virtue, then we're going to look like liars, right? And that's what the, that's what the world does a lot of times. It calls us out, um, as, as liars. Um, all the sex abuse scandal stuff that's been going on in, 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 in the Baptist church and the Catholic church and all these different things, right? Um, that, that should make us ashamed, right? Um, that should, that should wreck us, all right? That's the world looking to the church and saying, you're liars, okay? You don't actually believe what you say because these things are going on within your churches, okay? And so there's one side where we have to be honest about things, but that's not the only piece. The other piece is, if we're honest about the way that we're sinners and honest about the fact that we need a Savior, the gospel actually has to do, do something in our lives. If we have a gospel that just sort of goes, you're a bad person, but don't worry, Jesus saved you, you're good, then the rest of the world looks at it and goes, cool, that doesn't do anything. Right? I'm glad you feel better about you know this imaginary heaven that you're talking about, um, but I don't need to feel any better. But if the world sees lives that are changed, if the world sees lives that shift from vice to virtue, a gospel that changes people's hearts and makes them into different people, then the world starts going, man, something's happening. That gospel is powerful. That gospel does something, and it changes people's lives. So this is what I'm going to do. We're going to close with prayer. But what I want you to do is this week in small group, um, if you get in small group, I want you to kind of talk about some of these these things and talk about the different ways that we understand virtue. Because I think it will be an interesting conversation to say, what does it mean to live virtuously? Because people tend to have different opinions on what that looks like. 
And I think it, it revolves a lot around the ideas of holiness and godliness. Is virtue an external thing or is virtue an internal thing? And the truth is it's both of those things, but people often disagree on that stuff. And I want you to talk about um, so some of these topics that we've talked about. What elements of the gospel um, are the ones that, that push up against you and, and the issues with virtue that you have in your own life, Right. Is it because you're, you're, you're scared to be vulnerable, right? Um, is it because you're too scared of the world? Like, what are the things that are going on in your life and heart that would keep you from seeking after virtue diligently? Making every effort to pursue virtue and add virtue to your faith. All right? So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and maybe let's just take it as a time to reflect, um, to ask God to continue to call out those things, right? Ask God the places, to show us the places where we have been lazy, um, where we've been uh, lax in pursuing virtue, um, and ask God to start to stir us up, just like Paul said. He said, man, I'm never going to get tired of stirring you people up about this stuff, right? This is my job. Um, this is what God has called me to. I want to stir your faith up so that you add these things to it, right? So let's go to the Lord in prayer and and ask him to to show those things to us. Father God, that you would chasten us, um, that you would root out um, the contentment um, that we have with our sin, um, that you would root out the laziness that we have in pursuing uh, virtue. God, that you would open our eyes to the places that we have missed, to the places that we have gotten um, comfortable with, um, to the places that we have made compromises for the sake of, of, of fitting in or being accepted um, or, or indulging um, our own desires. God, we ask that you would bring these things to the surface. We want to be people who are set apart. Um, we want to be people who, when the world looks at us, they say, I don't know if I believe Everything these people say, but it's obviously doing something in their lives. It is obviously working. It is obviously powerful because they are leading different lives than they were. God, we want to be people whose lives are totally given over to you. That begins with faith. But God, we see that then we pursue the virtue that we find in your character and in your word. God, help us to do that. Help us to be virtuous people. Um, We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.